Hello, everyone. Just to let you know, we'll start the presentation in about one minute. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everyone. Just to let you know, we'll start the presentation in about 30 seconds. Thank you once again for joining us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, Common Equipment and Tasks That Can Lead to Arc Flash Incidents, sponsored by eHazard and Bulwark. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor with Safety and Health, and I'll be moderating today's event. First, thank you so much for joining us, and before we get started, there are a few housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speaker and organizations are their own, do not necessarily affect those in the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the counselor of the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll cut back to question and answer session with our speaker. If you have a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and press the send button. We welcome your questions at any time during today's event. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We might not get to every question, but the good news is unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Also, after this presentation, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. Just to let you know, this webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event to view this webcast and all of our past webcasts. Please visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com events, or you may receive a link in a post-event email. With that, let's introduce our speaker. With us today is Zahir Juma, partner at eHazard. Zaheer performs electrical workplace safety training, consulting, arc flash engineering studies, electrical incident investigations, and electrical safety audits. He is a member of the IEEE, ASTM, and IEC committees, and has contributed to the NFPA 70E standard. Zaheer also currently serves as editor and papers review chair for the IEEE Electrical Safety Committee. Again, we thank you all for tuning in this present tuning into this presentation. Zaheer, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thank you so much, Alan. Good morning, everybody. Oh, yeah, I think it's morning in most places. It's afternoon on the East Coast. So good afternoon to you all. And for everyone else that's joining us, it's good to be here. I feel so invigorated because last week I was at the electrical safety workshop. And, um, you know, with all of us just kind of doing your work, sometimes you feel that your batteries run a little low. And I always find the electrical safety workshop as something that charges my battery. So I'm so invigorated to be talking about electrical safety. And interestingly, I had completed this presentation before attending the electrical safety workshop. Uh, I'm just going to do a little bit of a punt for the electrical safety workshop. The IEEE Institute of Electronic, uh, Electrical and Electronics Engineers uh, sponsors the electrical safety workshop, and it's not a commercial type of, web, um, of, of, of a workshop. It is more about getting ideas and getting literature that can be published in engineering journals and safety journals uh, that are peer reviewed. So it's a very important conference, and I believe that it is one of the large exclusively electrical safety conferences in the US. So 
the one thing about this conference is that people look at the IEEE logo and think, oh gosh, it's a bunch of engineers talking engineer talk. And I assure you that's far from the truth because uh, this year in attendance, we had over a third of safety and health practitioners. We had supervisors, we had hands-on electricians. We even had um, mechanical millwrights, mechanical technicians attending. So it is a fantastic conference. And the papers, they actually give you food for thought. It's not all about, hey, you've got to do this to be safe and you've got to, be do, you've got to do this to be safe. But the interesting thing about the conference is it asks questions intriguing kind of questions that make you go back and evaluate the way you do things. And this is this is what I brought back with me. Now, I haven't made any changes to the slides because that was the way I was thinking when I actually came about doing this presentation. And this presentation that I wanted to discuss with you was, I get a lot of questions about where are arc flash occurring? Who, who, who is causing these arc flash? Who, who are the people that are getting hurt? And so I thought, why not discuss it? And so that gave rise to, um, to, to this presentation. Now, I like starting my presentations with the absolute basics, okay? What are electrical hazards? When we talk about electricity, we have two hazards. We've got the shock hazard and the arc flash hazard. So if you look at this, the arc flash is basically an electrical breakdown followed by an uncontrolled release of energy. So think about a water pipe. Okay, this water pipe is under pressure. And when this water pipe ruptures, for whatever reason, maybe somebody um, drives into it, maybe it's old, maybe it was not designed to the correct specification. And once this water pipe blows up, um, all of the water pumps, all of the dams, all of the reservoirs, all of them are going to try to pump all of the water through this opening. That's just how energy is, right? And so with an arc flash, you get almost this bolt of lightning between the conductors. And I mean, it's sometimes it can be really tiny. It can be an inch, two inches. But what that does is it produces enough heat from all of the melting, all of the fuel that sustains this arc, like the copper that's burning, the steel, the aluminum, the stainless steel, everything around it's burning because, because of the intense temperatures, like five to 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, right? So everything there is burning. Now, what that does is it produces a thermal event and that thermal event can actually travel at the speed of light. So it is convective, but there's also a, um, a radiative component to it. Now associated with that, you get blast as well. But when I'm talking about blast, um, I, I don't want you to be thinking about the matrix and like kind of everybody being blown back and Keanu reeving all across the place. That's not kind of the arc blast that I'm talking about here. Um, it's a blast that actually causes pieces of the equipment, like a door or a cover to be blown apart, all right? So, so, so it doesn't blow itself into smithereens. It's, it's, it's the entire panel that is ejected from that equipment, strikes the worker and causes this blunt force trauma onto it. 
I just realized something while I was speaking to you all. Um, Alan mentioned that if you have any questions, drop them in the Q&A. What I want to mention as well is if you have any questions regarding anything electrical rated, uh, related, drop those in the Q&A. Um, even if your question's not related to my presentation today, I will do my best to answer it. And if I cannot get uh, an answer to you in time, I'll definitely circle around and send you an email afterwards. Okay, now electrical arc flash, unfortunately, doesn't happen, well, fortunately, right? Um, it doesn't happen as frequently as we would like to think that something as high risk as this occurs. Now, what's the problem with that? Why am I being so contradictory? What's the problem with this? The problem with it is if it's not in your face, it gets into the back burner, right? There's not gonna be uh, budgets allocated to tend to this. It's not gonna be at the forefront of everybody's thoughts. Everybody's gonna be, th be thinking mobile machinery, working at heights, confined spaces, et cetera, et cetera. People are gonna be talking about all of this, right? No one's really gonna be looking at these arc flash accidents if they don't occur, right? And this is the problem with it. It's highly infrequent, but the consequences, I mean, people tell me, oh, because of production, I can never shut this piece of equipment down to replace this breaker, for example. And I say to them, well, if there's an arc flash, whether anybody gets hurt or not, trust me, production is coming to a standstill. So I don't know about you all, but I like a planned shutdown rather than an unplanned shutdown. All right, but what is killing more people? What is killing the largest number of electrical workers out there, both qualified and unqualified workers? That is electric shock, all right? And electric shock manifests itself in two ways. One is where you get into contact with a piece of equipment and it passes current through your body. The other is where the ground, you know, Mother Earth, actually, which is regularly or normally zero volts, picks up a potential. And that is what we call step potential. All right. So without getting into too much of details, I mean, I've written several papers with regards to this. I've presented many times. So if you go into one of our safety and health archives that I've presented previously, you would come across at least one of my presentations where I've gone into more detail with regard to step and touch potential. Now, I will be covering step and touch potential a little bit today. I think what I decided to do today was everybody thinks about electrical hazards and they think arc flash, arc flash, arc flash. And I wanted to kind of do things differently today. What I wanted to do was kind of have more of a focus on talking about electric shock, all right? And that's what I aim to do. So how am I doing that, all right? How am I getting this message across? Think about it. If OSHA has all of these rules, if standards that you work with, like the NESC, National Electrical Safety Code, if that has guidance, if the National Fire Protection Association, NFPA, in their 70E standard has all of this guidance, why are we still seeing injuries? The problem with a lot of these standards is they tell us what we need to do, but they don't tell us how we need to be able to do this. So most, most workers, most electricians on site, most engineers on site, they need to know what does this mean? What is the hazard and how do I protect myself against this hazard? And do you know what happens? Although you've got all of these rules, you've got all of this training, what happens is when a person goes out to site, 
their view, their focus becomes very narrow. So, um, so we are in Kentucky. I mean, I, I, I live here in Louisville, Kentucky. Our e-hazard offices are out here in Louisville, Kentucky. And you all know Kentucky. Um, we're big on horses, right? It's all about the Kentucky Derby, right? And so it's, you have these horses that normally graze out in an open field and they can see everything around them. But when it comes time for the race, when you are lined up at the starting line, they all have these blinders on. You cannot see left, you cannot see right, you just look straight ahead. And I think this is the problem. I mean, with me at least in industry, right? And um, what I find is when I go out and I'm doing something, I become hyper-focused and I sometimes lose track of the big picture. And I mean, think about this. When you are working in your garage, when you are working in your kitchen, when you are working um, in your study, for example, we all tend to become hyper-focused. And I think this is one of the risks that standards tell us, hey, you got to worry about this, you got to worry about that. But unfortunately, we as human beings sometimes uh, don't get the big picture. The other problem that we may have is, oh, yeah, Zahir just spoke to me like for an hour about step and touch potential and arc flash. Um, but I got this particular application and I have no idea how to take what he said and apply it. So the implementation is also a big question that we've got to ask. So how do we learn? And I've got there in the middle, investigations are key, right? You know what my problem with the investigations are? Okay, let me ask you this question. Right, and you don't have to answer me, it's more for rhetorical questions. Are investigations reactive or proactive? Right, and if you think about if you think about it, when do investigations occur? They occur usually after the accident. Oh, now some of you may tell me, oh no, but what if it's a near miss? What if something happened that could have resulted in harm but didn't result in it? So it's a near miss. So if I investigate it, I'm being proactive. No. No, because those gaps that cause that near miss are already in your organization. Do you realize that? If I, um, and, and, and I've got to get, give credit to somebody, um, somebody who I really admire that mentioned this last week, and I'm going to give credit to that person later in the presentation today. The person mentioned that, um, hey, if I have to dig up um, a communication cable and let's say I stop communication for a little while and interfere with your Netflix or your um, uh, Hulu or whatever else you're streaming these days. Um, uh, sorry, I shouldn't actually be mentioning these names <laughs> on a podcast, uh, on, on, on a webinar. I apologize for that. But let's say you're watching your favorite uh, streaming show and I interrupt that. Well, no harm, no foul. You're a little bit upset and... Um, you know, you go and get a snack in the kitchen or whatever. It doesn't really cause any harm. But do you know what the problem is? What if that wasn't a communication cable? What if that was a high voltage cable or a medium voltage cable that you struck? Okay. The problem here is that whatever gaps allowed you to get to that near miss were already inherent into your system, right? So I like to think of this differently. Investigations are reactive only for the people for whom have been investigating it, for the people who have been affected by it, for an outside body, for an independent body that has not come across that as yet, investigations are actually proactive because they haven't happened to you as yet. If you are able to find these gaps and plug these gaps, hey, you are the hero of the day, right? So 
Most utilities and most industry communicate these incidents, but here's my two big problems with it. Number one, it is communicated internally. You and I don't have eyes on it. People don't want this in information out. Number one, it gives away their competitive edge. Number two, maybe there's something to be said about the pride and the faith that they had in their safety program that didn't materialize. And then generally, it's about being quick, being on the draw, being able to drop this investigation report as soon as possible. Do you know, they call it um, uh, a, a safety stand-up or a safety minute or something like that. And within 24 hours, they try to get this note out. The problem with that is you're not always giving me the final details, the root causes of it. So what I'm going to discuss today is investigations. How do you do them? We're going to talk about task and equipment on where you are seeing this. And finally, we're going to end up with protection strategies. So I don't have too many slides today. I think if I go probably less than a minute a slide, which I am hoping to do, except I didn't do that very well as yet. Uh, so if we keep like to about less than a minute per slide, we should have about 10 minutes for uh, Q&A at the end of this presentation. All right. Looking forward to your questions. Please ask away. All right, so investigation techniques. Let's start off talking about investigations first and foremost. So I did a postgraduate study with regards to accident investigation and incident investigations. And you won't find, you, you, you should not find this um, uh, as news, but most of these, most of these were not actually performed effectively. We didn't have subject matter experts involved in the investigations. We had people who were kind of leading the investigation in a certain direction. So where do we start? We obviously have to start with having great, excellent incident investigations. And one of the, the easiest resources for, for, for you to be able to find out and to be able to audit your investigation technique is the Department of Energy. DOE has a fantastic handbook. I've copied the link out here. You can write this down quickly um, and go and have a look at it. It's... Um, it's quite a bit. I think it's like about 250 pages. Somebody's going to correct me and tell me, no, it's 253 pages. Okay, so it's not exactly bedtime reading, but here's the good thing about it. All of the headings make it really easy to read. So if there's a particular chapter or a particular paragraph that does not apply to you, skip it. You can go come back and read it later on. But the good thing about this is they tell you, where do you start? How do you preserve the information? How do you question people at the appropriate time so that like a day or two later, they're not convoluting their story. What you're hearing is the proper sequence of events, the proper actions and activities that had occurred, all right, to be able to draw this accurate timeline. So they actually give you paperwork, they give you template templates. Uh, I'm mixing up my plurals and my singulars here. So um, they, they, they give you templates all right, out there. It is a fantastic resource. Now, this is not the only resource, please. Um, I'm not pushing you into a one-dimensional type of uh, thinking. They actually have stuff that's worked. Now, also the literature is pretty outdated uh, uh, in terms of timeline, but it is still as effective. Many organizations still follow this and has and have excellent accident and incident investigations. So it needs to start at the basics. You've got to be brilliant at basics. Um, I was joking the other day and I said, uh, when it comes to investigations, I want my investigation teams to be the, um, 
what's those two famous people who are always fighting for audiences? Uh, the Justice League and the Avengers. Yes, Avengers and Justice League. Yeah, that's what you all got to be. You all got to be the heroes of this accident and incident investigations. You got to fly in there with your cape and your um, uh, funny colored outfits and um, kind of get in there and save the day. But you got to have a system. You got to work to something. All right. So, that is the investigation method. What about case histories? Now, for case histories, I'm going to push you on to two, two areas that are fantastic. One is called um, the IEEE Explore. So this is the database of all published journals that are electrical in nature. The other one that I'm going to mention that I haven't um, written out here on my PowerPoint presentation is called Science Direct. Science Direct, D-I-R-E-C-T, Science Direct. Now, unfortunately, both of these, because they are journal um, and they have magazines and stuff associated with them, there's going to be a cost component if you find something um, really interesting. But, um, you know, I've heard and I don't know about this, but if you have a friend who's in college or if you have a student that's at college, you know, generally their username and password may get you access to some of these journal um, databases or anything. This is just what I've heard, all right? I don't know whether this is true or not. And uh, if I had my camera on, you'd see me doing a wink wink here. All right, so um, there's ways that you can get to this, but I'll tell you there's a really complicated way to find out about electrical accidents. You go to your favorite search engine and you type in electrical accidents, okay? I know it's really complicated and difficult to do, but I assure you it's gonna pick up a whole lot of hits. And uh, guess what? I did that as well when I was coming up with some of the cases that uh, I'm going to be presenting to you. Most of these cases are cases that I've been involved in investigating. So um, the stuff that I'm going to talk to you about, the most of them are things that I've had firsthand experience on, and some of them are things that are found on the internet. Right, so um, let's talk about the task and equipment, the stuff that you all are really interested in, all right? So the first one starts off with, obviously, we got to talk about power lines, but I am going to talk about power lines in a very interesting angle, all right? I've decided to take a slightly different angle with this, and um, oh, actually, there was one slide that I added in here after the electrical safety workshop, but um, it was just um, not an entire slide, just part of uh, parts of the slide with updated information. The other thing I'm going to talk to you about is switch gear. So when I talk about switch gear, um, actually, let's just wait till we get there. And then finally, I'm going to talk about grounds. Okay, not grounding or grounded as the NEC folks have it. All right, but before we jump into these accidents, I need to mention this. This is very important, folks. The disclaimer is that fatalities occur everywhere. It's not limited to a particular piece of to, to, to a particular uh, piece of equipment. Um, they occur with qualified, unqualified, or authorized or unauthorized persons. So you cannot tell me, oh, all of these people are um, um, inexperienced or whatever. In fact, there's a database that I looked at of safety accidents, and the majority, I think it was 90% plus of those fatalities occurred with people who are qualified electrical workers in that particular job for five years or more. So don't make that statement. It's not, um, it's not based on science or fact, all right? So 
what if you don't catch the details? Obviously, I've got like um, about six of these cases I'm going to be going through. I'm not going to be able to deep dive into any of the details. You know that that's not going to happen. So what I want you to do is I want you to take the principle of what I'm discussing. All right. What was the situation? What was the equipment? What were they trying to do? Ask yourself those deep inquiring questions and then ask yourself, what about your workplace? What about your colleague? Are you all exposed to any of this? What about your contractor? What about your neighbor? <laughs> all right. You're going to ask yourself whether there's exposure to any of these. You may need to reach out to a subject matter expert to be able to interpret some of this for you because you may say, hey, I've seen this PowerPoint presentation. This person was talking about this incident and it made no sense to me. Can you help explain this to me um, in, in, in a way that I can understand it? Right, so I want to highlight the common tasks that cause these fatalities, and I don't want to get stuck into the details of it. All right, so let's jump straight in with power lines. All right, the first incident was where you had a contractor who was installing a 25 kV service. Now, this was in a very uh, hot, humid environment, so there was a lot of um, sweat and all of this, and the lines were not covered. So especially with some of the utilities, with the way they work, um, normally what they would do is like at least two or three days before the job is going to take place, they get out and they cover the lines up. Now, remember, a cover is a cover. It's not meant to insulate the line to the point that uh, you and I can just walk up and go and touch that line. All right. Unfortunately, where this person was working, they had extended past the covering of the lines. And as they were working, they managed to get themselves into a voltage difference. So they crossed um, and and without getting into too much of the details of it, they crossed the OSHA minimum distances while they were up working, suspended working on this particular line. It resulted in a tracking arc. Now, um, I've had a video here, but I decided not to play the video for you all. But what you see here, and I don't want you to get this the wrong way, but um, and 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 I'll explain to you why I make the statement. The worker was in arc-rated clothing, but the but the shirt that they were using on the inside was not arc-rated. So what happens when you initiate an arc on lines on power lines? They tend to travel. Okay, depending on where the arc is initiated. And so what happened here was that the arc actually traveled across the inside of the worker's body. Now, this is something we generally see at higher voltages. You know, realistically, like practically on the, not realistically, practically on the voltages that you all work with, we're talking about like 12,470 volts, 13,200, 13,800 volts and above. Do you know your typical um, municipal kind of, um, local distribution voltage, all right? So that's that's the kind of voltages that we see this tracking arc occur at. So you're not gonna see this at any of your lower voltages. Now, luckily for this worker, although the arc had tracked through the body, um, the arc-rated clothing, the fact that there was sweat that allowed for a low impedance arc to then clear uh, fairly quickly, all of this went on and assisted the worker being able to survive this. Now, folks, what I'm doing is, uh, and sorry if I didn't mention this, I'm talking about the accident, I'm talking about where it occurred, and I'm talking about a, a little bit about the worker, perhaps what the worker was using. We're going to come into protection strategies a little later, so I'm going to discuss all the things that could have been done to have prevent this accident in, in a little while.
All right. But when we're talking about overhead power lines, I want to I want to mention something to you. This was a paper that was published um, and you'd be able to find it online. You'd be able to find this information in uh, uh, peer review published papers as well. What they find is that overhead lines um, contribute to about 40 percent of the fatalities that we see. All right. All other electrical fatalities fatalities um, make up the remainder of that uh, 60%, all right? But then if you take a deep dive into this blue area here, um, I, think, I think I've got a little scribbler somewhere here. Okay, I'm not gonna try and be fancy here. Okay, but the light blue overhead power lines, the 41%, if you look at that, now if we take a deep dive into this, you'll see that only a third of these accidents are actually related to occupation um, that's, that's electrical in nature. We're talking about electrician, lifeline workers, et cetera, et cetera, right? The majority of these are non-electrical occupations that are exposed to these hazards, right? I think the next slide that I'm bringing up takes a deeper dive into those non-electrical tasks. What are those non-electrical workers um, who are being fatally injured? And if you look at the stats from the past, like uh, 10, 10 years, all right, you'll see that this actually fluctuates according to the profession. So construction laborers are where we're seeing the most. Okay, these are, the orange shows the exact number, um, whereas the red shows the percentage of overall fatalities, right? So if you look at this, um, we've got the most here with construction laborers, tree trimmers, and general contractors as well. All right. So very little of them, um, people who are like painters, truck drivers and stuff, but they do feature in here. So let's talk about some of these accidents. The most, the latest one that I've come across wasn't too long ago. It was uh, March 13th, right? So um, yeah. And I didn't actually have this on the slide, but when it appeared, I just had to talk about it. What happened here was they were um, replacing shingles or installing tiles on this roof. And they were on a, uh, on a lift. And unfortunately, this lift came into contact with the power lines. And if you zoom in, you can actually see the point of contact that the cables have actually welded these holes into, um, into this, this, this equipment. Now, one of the dangerous things that happens here, well, there's two. Um, number one, when you are on any sort of a lift, and there's an electrical contact accident, it usually fries the control. It blows up the control equipment. That means that a person who's in that area will generally be stranded up there. There's no way of, of, of rescuing or lowering this equipment. Now, what I've heard is that some of the newer equipment is bypassing electronics only and is actually going on to uh, hydraulic or pneumatic type of uh, backups where you don't need electrical power to be able to operate and rescue that. Unfortunately, folks, my local contractor from around the corner of the street is not going to be privy to this, neither are they going to spend the extra dollars in investing in this. All right, so mm -hmm. that's the problem that we are going to experience. These type of incidents and accidents are still going to occur. Now, this person, unfortunately, and this is what I think some of us do tend to miss, is that most of the fatalities, all right, and just bear with me, take what I'm saying with a pinch of, with a grain of salt, all right? Most of these fatalities 
are not the electrical contact itself. It is the arc flash that occurs and it ignites non-arc rated clothing, right? What do I mean by that? It's if you take, um, take an old rag, all right? And the next time you have a fire or you have a grill or whatever, take a small piece of this rag and throw it into the fire and look at the amount of heat that it produces. When we were doing arc testing, the one day we tried looking at, um, at a typical utility setup and we generated an arc and we put a mannequin in front of the arc with denim blue jeans, this regular denim blue jeans. And uh, because the pants was kind of falling off this mannequin, we put a belt across it, like a normal leather belt with a, uh, with a metal buckle on it. After the arc flash, we had ignited the clothing and we just let the clothing burn for um, probably like half a minute to a minute or so before we extinguished it. And we were trying to find out where did the buckle go? And what we thought was that the electric arc had like kind of somehow or the other jumped onto the buckle and blown it away. No, after looking at the video and analyzing the data, what we had found was the heat generated from the burning of the denim blue jeans, which is the same similar sort of energy that you would get from an ignition of a shirt, had actually melted the metal and caused the metal to drip off the mannequin till it formed a neat little, um, it was like a probably like a three inch rod. Okay, and that was a melting of metal. So if the ignition of clothing can melt metal, you know what? I don't think your body is going to stand up to that very well. All right. The good news is if you are still in your 20s, early 20s, mid 20s, you're going to recover from this. Unfortunately, most of our workers are not in that age group. All right. So let's talk about overhead um, power line contact. Now, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. So these, um, I think this incident and the next one I'm going to be talking about kind of hit fairly close to home. So uh, because these incidents happened in Kentucky. All right. So uh, here was a 61-year-old dump truck uh, operator. And what had happened here was they were demoing a building to try and reconstruct a new building. I've got the link out here. And um what happened was because the dirt began to pile up higher and higher and higher, what first started off on the original risk assessment as, hey, we may be clear of this. Well, you know, here me in my um, nice little way talking about a risk assessment and uh, deep in my heart, I hope that somebody did some sort of a risk assessment, but uh, generally with um, domestic residential type of contractors. I think the risk assessment is the last thing on their mind. Well, that is at least my experience on it. But anyway, um, I'm going to look on the rosy side of life and I'm going to think that somebody did a risk assessment before they started out here. So what happened was after they began piling up the debris, um, the clearance between the dump truck uh, bin and the line had decreased. So when they when he raised the bin, um, he actually made contact with the line. Now, what had happened here? While he was stepping off the truck, he came into contact with a step potential. So he had a voltage differential across his body and um, where his feet landed uh, between the two different feet, he had a difference in potential, all right? And actually, I think, I think here you may be right if you're questioning my approach to this, because here it was probably a little bit of touch potential as well. Now, one of the things I want to mention to you all, and I think I've got it here in the next video. Um, yeah, uh, no, no, I've, 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 I've actually got it on much later, all right? But um, 
one of the things that you got to watch out for is being is staying put all right in the vehicle and i'll talk about this in a little while let's just run through i've just got another 10 minutes and i want to get through all of my slides today all right so a kentucky resident's walking in the woods didn't realize that there was a downed power line now i came across something very interesting as well because most rural fatalities on overhead power lines usually occur with residents who live within a um, generally like a one to two mile radius of where the fatal accident occurs. Now, here's what I want to warn you of. When you have a down power line, please don't think Hollywood movies because you might not see sparks flying across all over the place. It might just look like the line is de-energized. You may not see anything until you step into that zone. And then it's... Um, um, then, I mean, it's, it's, it's all bets are off, all right? So there's a link to the article. You can read this, uh, husband and wife taking a walk in the woods, um, which they've done many, many, many a times. And unfortunately, on this particular instance, there was a down power line and he got into a step potential and he died. All right, this was another incident that happened and it speaks a lot to the question of quality in our workplace. What happened here, it was a utility that came out to one of these pad mount circuit breakers and um, they had a fuse that operated, but while the fuse operated, it had also flashed. All right, so there was an arc flash. So they had the repair crew that came out, they cleaned up the switch gear, they replaced the fuse, but one of the parts that were damaged, I think one of the clips um, that was damaged was not exactly the manufacturer or the, or, or the preferred replacement that they had. So they made a temporary repair and they restored power and they were waiting for this part to arrive. The problem was that the senior technician out there um, knew that the crew that had done this repair was a, um, was a novice crew. He was unsatisfied that they had found the root of this problem or the immediate cause of this problem. And so what had happened? Now, remember, this person was working already uh, the entire day. They had performed the repairs. This outage occurred at about, um, I'm guessing it was somewhere around 1.30 a.m. or so. And at about 4 a.m. the next morning, while they're waiting for the spares to come out, he goes out and he uses his flashlight to try and inquire a little bit more, just probe a little bit more to see if what they said was actually true, right? So he came from a good place. His intentions were good. What was the problem? He had arc-rated clothing, but he did not have any shock protection. He didn't have uh, gloves, but he had electrical hazard-rated shoes. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough because as he stuck the flashlight in there, obviously he encroached the minimum approach distance and there was an arc flash. Now, fortunately for him, he survived this with minimal burns thanks to the arc-rated clothing he was using, but he didn't have any face protection. He didn't have any head protection. He didn't have any hand protection. So that's another thing that we got to talk about because we are all renowned we're famous for saying hey my people have arc-rated clothing okay but the question is are they protected against an electrical arc flash because we think about a shirt we think about a pant and we think hey i've done my bit and i'm gonna sleep like a baby tonight all right um and for for, for those of you who know kids you know that means you wake up crying every two hours right um but 
If you feel that you've done enough just by providing R-graded clothing, let me tell you, you are sorely mistaken if you're not auditing your workers and making sure that they are using hand and head protection as well. So equipotential zone, this, um, I've added a link to the incident as well. You can write down the link and click and go to the link. Right, but uh, the line was de-energized, but they failed to create an equipotential zone. So if you can look at this picture here, and I'm gonna try and talk through, through, through this picture, it appears from the, um, from the incident, and this uh, occurred at uh, the Department of Energy, and it was a nationally um, investigated incident, and it was published. What had happened here was that they had used a driven ground rod. So if you look to the right of this picture, you're going to see the driven ground rod, and they had hung grounds. Now, let me tell you what happened here, because you're not going to see this in my presentation, was the two crews were actually debating with each other, and things got very heated, and the two Two crews just decided to go and do their own thing. So one crew created an equipotential zone where if you can see the line here, can you see the little cross where you've got the insulators and you've got the line going across? Um, the one that says um, to the Monument Tap and Rogue substation, um, if you look at the writing there, what they had done right there on the top of the pole, they had also hung grounds there to the foot of the worker and then connected it to the ground grid and they had installed the portable ground sets, but they had brought that back down. They had bonded it to the same spot. So all grounds came back to the same ground set. Now, what happens was because they had this driven ground rod and they had um, uh, the ground grid, there was a potential difference between the two of this. As the worker stepped out to B447, as they went to work on that particular switch, they experienced a potential of difference, a, poten a potential of difference, difference of potential, and it was a fatality. Only Zahir can slip up on something um, this serious. Okay, so um, now, unfortunately, the worker experienced both shock and arc flash, all right? So it was a fairly, it was a fairly gruesome fatality, all right? But talking about gruesome fatalities, do you know, prob probably the one that stuck out the most for me was a case that I heard about was um, an electrician who was on a 10-foot ladder trying to work on a bus duct. Now, uh, for those of you in utilities, you may not be using this a lot, but a bus duct is, sim is, is, is simply a rail system. Okay, so there's uh, electrical conductors and it allows you to plug in and remove boxes obviously under safe, electrically safe work conditions um, to be able to move your production around. So um, yeah, and what had happened was she had put on a ladder and went up to, I think, replace a fuse or to inspect a fuse. And as she opened up the cover to look at this fuse, there was an arc flash and it ignited her non-arc rated clothing. But the sad part was that it has also, um, I think because she was startled with the arc flash, she kind of fell backwards or when her clothing had ignited, she fell backwards and she, with a 10 foot drop, she broke her neck and she died. But the problem was, um, although she had died, her body still continued burning because all the clothing on her just continued burning. So that was definitely one of the more gruesome ones I've seen. And then uh, going out to a site where somebody was trying to steal copper from a substation. And um, do you know when you walk in there and you get that smell of the electrical burns, but also of somebody who's just like released all of whatever was on the insides just came to the outside. And it's that smell of burnt flesh. 
Um, that was probably two of the most gruesome. The one was the most gruesome thing I've ever seen in my life. And the other was uh, the most gruesome thing that I've ever heard of. So these incidents can get pretty, pretty disastrous. All right. So the last one I'm going to talk about is stray phantom or ghost voltages. These are very different from induced voltages. Induced voltages generally occur on power lines and power lines then couple with something that is metallic, magnetic in nature, and uh, induce a voltage on them. Okay, that is what induced voltage is. Stray or phantom voltages occur through a direct, direct, there's a direct electrical connection um, between them. So generally these occur on, um, I, I see them more often in lower voltage systems, like low voltage systems. And you all know OSHA delineates the two between high voltage and low voltage um, being like that 600 volts. So they say systems operating at 600 volts and below or equipment operating at above 600. That is how they delineate high voltage and low voltage. For most of us in industry, we know that um, the engineering standards sort of refer to it as below a thousand volts is low voltage, a thousand to 69 kV or maybe even 72.5 kV is called medium voltage. And above that is called high voltage. And sometimes some folks would refer to extra high voltage as voltages above like two, uh, 230 or maybe 400 kV. Uh, and extra low voltage being voltages, standard, normal, control, instrumentation, automation voltages at 50 volts and below is sometimes referred to as extra low voltage, just an aside. All right, so the two case studies here was that one person had incorrectly connected a generator, and as they transitioned from one area to the other, they came across a potential difference that resulted in a fatality. All right, so it was stray voltage electrocution. Remember, electrocution is when shock causes a fatality. So please don't walk up to me sometime and tell me, hey, Zaheer, I was electrocuted. Okay, I'd be very, very scared to hear that story. Um, not because of the story, but because of who's telling it. All right, um, but receiving a shock is where you receive a shock and you walk away from it. Electrocution means that it resulted in a fatality, all right? So the terminology is very important because when you tell me, hey, we had an electrocution on site, um, I'm obviously gonna get startled by it, all right? So um, this was a substation, now this didn't, result in a fatality, but it was one that I know of. Um, it was basically, uh, we had a secondary plant engineer commissioning a system, and because of stray voltages, it tripped of all the breakers that it could have tripped, of all the relays that could have picked it up, it was a substation bus zone differential. So it took out the entire bus of the entire substation. I tell you, things went very quiet for this, uh, for this engineer on that day. All right. But the point being, the stray voltage caused the trip. If this person wasn't aware of stray voltages and held the neutral wire, for example, without the adequate protection, they would have been fatally injured. All right. So what are these protection strategies? Let's run through them very quickly. I'm going to take about 10 minutes through to, to, to get through all of these. All right. So training. I know you all are going to say, oh, my gosh, not death through PowerPoint again. All right, um, folks, I absolutely hate training as well. All right. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with training because I love being trained and educated. It's just that physically my body doesn't allow me to stay awake when somebody is doing PowerPoints. All right. Um, it's very, very difficult difficult for, for, for me, all right? So when they talk about death by PowerPoint, all right? And then the second thing is that you may not be able 
as, 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 as much as your heart is in the right place as a person presenting this, people may not, not just not be able to understand what you're saying. They just may be uncomfortable in the facility. They may be just falling asleep looking at this PowerPoint presentation. So sometimes it's, it's, it's not just the person presenting it, but it's also the attendants, the delegates, right? The students. And then workers, are, not all workers are qualified. This is a very, very big risk that we run into in, in, in industry. And uh, I, I can talk about that in a little while, right? So this training is not a nice to have. It is an essential component of what we do, be it PowerPoint presentations, be it uh, on-the-job type of training, be it training through auditing, um, raising this awareness to workers while you are on site. So very important, the telecommunication regulation says that employees do not engage in any of the activities until proper training has been presented. And they ask you for record keeping as well. They tell you that the employer shall certify that the workers have been trained and they tell you what documentation has to be made available. Then let's talk about 1910.269, right? And I know some of you who are attending today, subpart S applies to you. Go and read 1910.332. I think it's 332. I may have mixed that number but i'm pretty certain it's 332 1910.332 that is the one that you are looking at all right for um for all of you who are not electric power generation transmission or distribution all right so what they say is obviously they want you trained but more importantly they want you proficient in your company's procedures and policies as well they want you trained on items that are not covered in that section but required. So they actually leave this open-ended requirement. So you cannot claim that, oh, I was working on electricity. I didn't think that I'm going to fall through a manhole and break my leg. No, if it's a hazard, OSHA says you got to identify it and you got to make sure that people are trained to it. All right. And I know all of you have already read ahead. So you've written, uh, read A2I already. So I'm not going to waste your time and read through it, but they speak about the specific requirements. All right. Now, also, one of the very, very interesting videos, folks, if you have not watched this, I strongly recommend that you go out and watch it. It's a resource from a utility on safety around downed powered line, downed, downed power line. All right, not downed powered line. Um, all right, so um, follow that link and go and check up on that link. All right, it is a great video. And please do me a favor, don't watch it by yourself. Share it with your other half as well. Show it to your kids, all right? And um, I know I spoke, I, I mentioned this to through um, uh, someone I know who was going through a divorce and he said, um, nah, I think I'm just going to keep this video to myself. All right. Um, so also don't forget to read 1926-1408, uh, which speaks about power line safety up to um, 350. I've summarized some of those requirements here. This is the construction regulations. And the construction regulation says you got to inform people of why it's so important to stay in the cab, keeping people away from this area avoiding any approach and the safe clearance from power lines itself. All right, creating an equipotential zone. I think I've got a few slides on this, but um, you know, I've done a very, very deep dive into this on one of my previous webinars. So go and look at the archives. And if you're interested in this, I've got a ton of information on these equipotential lines. So there's a very, very, very good paper which was presented. It was peer reviewed. It is, uh, it's gonna be accepted for publications in the journal. But ultimately what they talk about when creating an equipotential zone is make sure you are in a zoned bubble, all right? That 
every ground ultimately ends up being connected, low impedance connection to the same ground point if possible and create the safety bubble. Almost imagine that you are, do you know these inflatable bubbles that we kind of step into and we bounce around and then we go and run in the lake with it and then we um, run into each other with it. Imagine that that's what you're aiming for, but the ball itself is created with grounds, All right? So what about switch gear? What do you do if you have switch gear, All right? Uh, because this is a good question. A lot of people say, hey, OSHA says I need to get an equipotential zone. Well, that's easy to do if I'm outdoors. No, it is not easy to do if you are outdoors. You Most people end up, uh, most inexperienced crews end up doing this incorrectly. But what do you do if you're in a substation? Well, there's two things I'm going to say in the substation, and you can obviously read through uh, all, all of these. You have two options in a substation. The most practical option at, at inside, indoor substation with metal-clad equipment is that you have to create proper insulation. And... Um, uh, that means that all energized parts are going to be insulated. You are going to be insulated against the hazard. Um, and there's not going to be any possibility of contact with anything that's exposed, right? So if you're working on a 13.8 kV system, everything that you use got to be insulated to at least a class two glove up to like um, 17 and a half thousand volts uh, insulation or even more. Now, the very important thing, and I got to mention this because a lot of people tell me that after the linemen get the um, grounds on, that another person goes and tightens it with a hand tool. Folks, you are not allowed to do that. OSHA states Anytime you are coming into contact with a ground on an electrical system, whether the system is energized or de-energized does not matter. You have to use a liveline tool. You cannot use a hand tool. You got to use a glove with a hand tool when you are applying these, obviously up to the limit of a glove it, if, if it does exist. What do you do if you're trying to create an equipotential zone? Well, to create an equipotential zone, you got to first use a conductive mat, not a ground, not an insulating mat, but a metallic conductive mat. And that mat has to be tied to the same ground bar that you are attaching your portable grounds to. You also got to be trained then to know not to come into contact with any other metal pieces of the equipment. You got to stand on the mat, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, not a very common thing. Not a lot of people do this, all right? So I've got some other uh, language in here. You can obviously go back to the archives and have a look at this, or you can read through it super fast. Um, and then obviously your arc flash hazard analysis. This is a very important thing. A lot of people don't do this, but how do you quantify the hazard? How do you know if you've got below the minimum threshold to cause burns to skin or ignite non-arc related clothing? Folks, you don't know. You don't know until you do this arc flash hazard assessment. So get your hazard assessment done. Use arc rated clothing, of course. Use dielectric materials. Very, very important. Assume that as I'm talking, you all are reading the slides ahead of me, all right? So um, things that we may miss. Now, very important, I want you to make sure that your observers are not positioned in a high-risk zone. I want you to make sure that the driven rod is your last option. Another thing that we forget, a lot of us use metallic structures to keep people and animal and stuff out. So you may have like a chicken fence, you may have a brick fence, but you may have um, a metal, like a metal handle or a metal door or whatever. You've got to make sure that all of those are grounded and that the grounding is still present. The pigtail 
sales haven't been uh, worn off or stolen, have a rescue plan in case somebody is in a bucket and they've lost control. Uh, we don't want you jumping off the truck. So have a proper rescue plan if a bucket is stuck up in the air. And remember, on-site decisions change. So remember to escalate them. All right. Now, the person I was talking to about a little earlier raised a very, very important concern during this conference last week. And that's somebody that I really look up to, and that is Lanny Floyd. And Lanny Floyd has done so much to change the electrical safety culture, to advance it, to make sure that we all work safely. And he asked a very good question at the conference. He said, we are so compliance-based, but if you were compliance-based, why are we still seeing fatalities? All right. Whatever we're doing, we need to do more. You need to make sure that all jobs are planned. All right. So these are not what Lanny Floyd said. Lanny Floyd said, you got to think beyond compliance. And when he mentioned that, and he mentioned this to me many years ago, we need to think beyond compliance. What did he mean? And now I interpret it in a certain way, which may not be the same way that he's interpreted it. My interpretation is that all jobs must be planned. You cannot just sit in your office, but you've got to go out to sign site as well. One of the important things that he mentioned, and I'm a big believer of this, if you say that this is the preventative measure that I'm putting into place, ask yourself, what if that preventative measure fails? What if a person does not follow your preventative measures or your instructions? What then? you got to ask yourself that question. Anytime there's a change in scope, why do we go ahead and just say, hey, I've done my risk assessment. I think I'm good. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to go ahead and do this job. Why don't we reevaluate it? I mean, we never wrote this risk assessment in isolation. Why are we working with it in isolation? Why don't we just regroup, have more eyes on it before we decide to uh, proceed? What about people performing substandard work? There's a lot to be said about this. And the last point that I'm raising here is that You've got to have an organization that has a learning mindset. I tell you, one of the most dangerous things we can get into as individuals, you and me both, is we can continue to do what we do every day the same way we do it and not having a learning and a growth mindset. Hey, what can we learn from this? What went wrong? What can we do better? And therein, therein lies the, um, uh, the improvement of safety. Right. So with that, folks, I've got two concluding slides. It's just a summary of everything that we had discussed. You can read through this on your own time. Uh, sorry, I just had one concluding slide. But with that, I'm going to hand over back to Alan now. If there were any questions, we can answer those now. Alan, over to you. Well, thank you so much, Zahir. Uh, before we start the Q&A, we want to remind everyone the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is important because it'll help us improve our future webcast. Uh, now let's get to some questions. Um, what training should a non-qualified employee have to reset breakers and replace fuses? Okay, so once you get into the question of replacing fuses and you say an, an, an unqualified person, assume you are referring to a person that hasn't been through any formal electrical education or electrical training, like um, an electrician, a journeyman, a lineman, a master electrician, and the likes, all right? So a person who's replacing fuses, for example, will need the full suite of electrical safety training, which means training for shock, training for arc flash, rescue means, uh, protection strategies, understanding how to use personal protective equipment, et cetera, et cetera. They've got to do the full, full, full training class because this person is exposed to all hazards. 
Now, you may have a case where all you have is a person resetting a piece of equipment externally and just turning on, turning off a breaker. Well, OSHA is very clear about this. The training needs to be in line with the hazard. So please don't go and overtrain somebody because that's also a recipe for disaster. It gives them enough knowledge to be dangerous. So we've done many operator training classes and in those operator training classes, even classes that I've attended, the most effective ones are the ones that explain to a person how to understand what the arc flash hazard is, how to read the label and to make sure that they are trained to understand how to take care of the arc rated PPE as well as how to use it appropriately. Um, looks like we have time for maybe one more question. Um, what training should a non-qualified welder be provided? Ooh, so it all depends. Um, this is a fairly open-ended question. It all depends on what's the hazard the worker is going to be exposed to because a welder who's working in a high voltage yard could actually um, step on something and maybe raise a weld or their hand gets into um, a shock boundary. So it all depends on your risk assessment. Remember, um, there's a simple rule for voltages up to 50 kV, a very simple rule. I call it the 10-4 rule, which is completely wrong, but I'm going to stick to it in any case because people remember 10-4. 10 feet is the higher number, is the higher voltage up to 50,000 volts, that's your clearance. If at any stage, by accident even, if you suspect that the person's going to encroach that boundary, they need to receive high voltage training. Then for low voltage, the actual distance is about three feet, six inches. Okay, three, three feet, six inches, 42 inches. We're going to round that up to about four feet. If at any time you think the welder is going to get within four feet of an energized conductor, I would go ahead and get them low voltage trained. Well, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we have run out of time today. We'd like to thank Zahir Juma, the entire team from our sponsors, eHazard and Bulwark. And of course, all of, it, all of you who joined us today, take care and have a safe day.